than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look! Up in the sky! It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Superman rocketed to Earth as an infant when the distant planet Krypton exploded. And who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild mannered reporter for the Daily Planet, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and freedom with superpowers far beyond those of ordinary mortals? It's Superman, Superman, Superman. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 71 of the Man of Scream podcast. I hope you remember, I am your host Mike Zumo, and I am back from my summer vacation, and for the next 17 weeks we're going to go on a new journey. A journey that takes us through the 1960s, late 1960s, filmation series, The New Adventures of Superman. This series was basically a series of uh, six-minute animated Superman adventures. It was broadcast on CBS from... September of 1966 until September of 1970. There were 68 Superman segments overall. Basically, there was a, there were 36 segments over the first season, and there were 16 each in the second and third seasons. They were packaged in different ways. The uh, first season was basically called straight up as the New Adventures of Superman, and that was packaged with... About five-minute Superboy segments. And they were. it was initially shown in half-hour blocks. There would be two Superman segments around a Superboy segment. So the way it would generally work is you'd start off with a Superman segment. Then you'd have an Adventure of Superboy segment. And then there would be another Superman segment. And that went on at least for the first season. And that's how I'm going to cover this going forward. The uh, Filmation cartoons were obviously packaged with other uh, DC Comics later in its run. It was, during the second season, it was packaged with some Aquaman, in which it was basically referred to as the Superman-Aquaman Hour of Adventure or something like that. And uh, and then it was uh, packaged with, uh, with Batman stories. So, But, however... The Superman-Superboy output remained the same. It was, for every two Superman segments, there was one Superboy segment. So, I am going to cover all of these as if they were New Adventures of Superman episodes from the first season. So, obviously, like I mentioned, the first season was Superman-Superboy-Superman. And that's how I'm going to do this all the way through. I'm not going to figure out what Aquaman or Batman, each of these things, aired with in Season 2 and Season 3. I'm going to stick straight with... uh, with Superman, as if it was the new adventures of Superman all the way through. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun on this run through the 17 weeks of animated Superman. I mean, it's not the greatest Superman in the world, but it's, you know, your typical Silver Age comics fair. I mean, it was Silver Age comics fair. Now, I've always believed that, you know, especially when the technology wasn't quite there yet, the very best way you could view comic books on the screen was definitely through animation i mean especially with cell animation i mean with any kind of animation your only limit is what you can draw especially when you're dealing with cell animation maybe uh certain things on the computer are more complicated than other things but 
you know, you can do things. You can have cosmic stories and supervillains because, you know, you don't have to worry about how you're going to realize their powers when, you're, you know, you're basically making a moving comic book for all intents and purposes. And that's really kind of how these segments work. They're you know, little six-minute comic stories, and the filmation animation is not the greatest in the world. I mean, we were spoiled in early animation with the Fleischers where... You know, I once commented that I didn't really talk a lot about Bud Collier, who will return as the voice of Superman in this, as will most of the old cast from the Fleischer cartoons. I really didn't talk a lot about Bud Collier's work during the Fleischers, because really, when you think about it, the real star of the Fleischers was the animation. Bud Collier had maybe two or three lines of story, and that was pretty much it. But there's going to be a lot more talking in this, and sometimes a little bit too much. But anyway, just a little bit about the series. This was the first TV series produced by Filmation, and it was popular in a Saturday morning time slot. If you're watching along, you're gonna, and if you haven't seen these in a while, and it's clear that these were made for young children, and that some of the talent brought in was some of the DC Comics talent of the time, including George Cashton, who wrote some. Some of the character designs, uh, I mean, a lot of people will look back at this and say uh, it was Kurt, it looks like Kurt Swan Superman, and that might be the case later in in the series, but I'm really getting, uh, and you feel free to write me in if you disagree, but from these early, uh, New Adventures of Superman episodes, I'm getting a real Wayne Boring feel, so. It might transition to Kurt Swan later in the run, we'll just have to wait and see. We're gonna see in one of the segments in this episode, the, uh, series marks the animation debut of Jimmy Olsen, and this series will mark the animated debuts of both Jimmy Olsen and Lex Luthor, and this will be the first on-screen debuts of... Many of Superman supervillains. We're going to see Brainiac, Toyman, Prankster, Titano, and even that imp from the fifth dimension, Mr. Mixias Bidilic. The animation of this series can be a little stiff, but it's definitely made up for by that voice talent that's brought on. I mean, you can't go wrong with Bud Collier and Joan Alexander from the old Superman radio show and the Max Fleischer cartoons. They'll voice Clark Kent and Superman and Lois Lane, respectively, and Jackson Beck, narrated during the Fleischers, will also provide the voice of Perry White. They provide those same roles, and Jack Grimes returns from the radio show to play Jimmy Olsen. And if you're familiar with the radio show, you're going to see that even though it's years later, Bud Collier has not missed a trick. He is still every bit as vibrant as the voice of Superman as he was. And as usual, while he's Clark Kent, he will keep his voice a little bit lighter, And but, you know, it's that classic, this looks like a job for Superman. But the voice change, you know, really set the standard for all of the actors that would come after him. Now, obviously, this show was a success, and... It was kind of a run aground by a, by the Action for Children's Television, which was basically one of those grassroots organizations formed in 1968 and dedicated to improving the quality of children's programming. And basically, what they, they didn't like the fact that Superman was uh, throwing punches and other action-related violence. Which So, the series was canceled in the 70s, and apparently future cartoons did not allow for such comic book violence. <sighs> I watch these segments as an adult now, and I have no trouble showing them to kids of any age. I mean, I don't know what these people are seeing, but that's neither here nor there. The show had a good three-season run, and we're going to uh, get into that, you know, very shortly. But first, like I mentioned, I'll give you the rundown of the cast. It's Bud Collier as Clark Kent and Superman. Bob Hastings will play young Clark Kent and Superboy in the Superboy segments. Jackson Beck narrates Superman segments, and he's Perry White. Lex Luthor and Beanie Martin. Ted Knight will narrate the Superboy segments and he'll provide the noises of crypto, I guess. I don't necessarily want to say the voice of crypto because I'm not sure if he talks. 
But Ted Knight will become even even more famous in the 70s and 80s as the narrator for the Super Friends. Joan Alexander, like I mentioned, returns for the voice Lois Lane. Cliff Owens is Brainiac. Ray Owens is Warlock. Jack Grimes is Jimmy Olsen. Julie Bennett played Lois Lane for some Superman segments. Gilbert Mack was Mr. Mixie Spitalik. And Janet Waldo was Lana Lang. The shorts were directed by Hal Sutherland. Producers were Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott. Some scripts were by George Cashton. Story consultant was Mort Weisinger, who had a huge role in making Superman uh, what he was today. And uh, I know that's been a few months ago at this point, but if you haven't, uh, listen to Find uh, Bob Fisher's Superman Forever Radio episode. I believe it's number 111. Bob has an in-depth talk with uh, Dr. Hank Weisinger, the son of Mort Weisinger. And it's a really fun thing, interview to listen to. One of the, I think it's one of the... One of the best episodes Bob has done so far, if not the best. So, good job on that, Bob. That's that. You can find that over at supermanforever.com or on iTunes. The storyboard artists were Harvey Toombs and Bob Maxfield. And music was composed and conducted by John Gart. So, and I believe the show properly introduced. I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then we're going to come back with the first half hour of the New Adventures of Superman. The Superman segment, The Force Phantom. And I'll follow that with up with the Superboy segment, The Spy from Outer Space, Part 1. And then, Merman of Emor. Hang around, folks. My name is Bob Fisher, and I host a podcast called Superman Forever Radio. In every episode, I'll take an aspect of this character's long history and talk about it. From 1938 to the present day. From the comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons... Superman has been part of my life for over 50 years, and if you'd like to know why, join me for each and every episode of Superman Forever Radio. So point your favorite podcatcher to Superman Forever Radio. That's Superman Forever Radio. SupermanForever.com All right, welcome back, folks. Let's get this started with The Force Phantom, and this was written by Oscar Bensall. And you're going to have a very short synopsis brought to you by supermanhomepage.com. And all of these synopses were brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. I'm only going to say that once. Invaders from one of Mars' moons sets about using their Force Phantom creature to destroy Earth's defenses. But Superman stops the energy creature, overloading the generator which powers it, which in turn destroys the invader's spaceship. Great story, Clark. Tell me, when the Force creature appeared, did you personally face any danger? Oh, not really, Chief. But for a moment there, I was in a pretty tight squeeze. And that's pretty much all there really is to this, as far as the story goes. This is basically a one big fight. And my first impression is that, like I said before in the opening, that this is a very Wayne Boring style Superman. Very barrel-chested, and the S-Shield is definitely an early Superman design. And there's even a shot where he seems to be flying horizontally while he's punching, you know. We often joke uh, when looking at Silver Age artwork, at least Bob and I do, is that sometimes... uh, when Wayne Boring drew Superman flying, it seemed like he was always in an upright position and not the uh, kind of parallel to the uh, ground that we're used to seeing. This first story is your, is your typical aliens from outer space attack the Earth. They create an energy being that may or may not be invisible. All you kind of see is the outlines of the of the phantom creature. Maybe that's just to show that we can see it too. I don't know. 
So we get a first scene with uh, Clark and Perry in Perry's office. Perry is uh, white-haired with a brown suit. Kind of uh, reminds me of John Hamilton a little bit. I wonder if that's what the uh, animators are going for. And the show does keep some of the mannerisms from the Adventures of Superman television series. As Perry says, Great Caesar's Ghost. And Bud Collier is talking to Perry and he's flexing his, his vocal muscles, you know, with his high-pitched Clark Kent and his deep-voiced Superman. This is a job for Superman. You know, and like I said, that's not the standard for all most actors. You know, most notably Kirk Allen and Christopher Reeve have done with their voice by, with the booming Superman voice. George Reeves really changed his voice very little. One of the things I wish he, maybe he'd done a little bit more to differ, differentiate Clark from Superman. A lot of people who grew up with the George Reeves show really liked the fact that uh, George didn't really do anything to disguise his voice. I would have liked him to have kind of created a little bit more separation between Clark and Superman. That's just me. But they continue to use the up, up, and away... And that, if I'm not correct, was implemented during the radio show, since listeners couldn't actually see Superman take off. And another thing he'll do, just about whenever he changes direction, he'll say, up. Then he goes down, he'll yell, take down. And those kinds of commands are kind of pointless in a visual medium, especially a moving digital medium in which you can see Superman go up and down. So here are our aliens. I almost hate to say this, but they kind of look like blue ancient Mongolians. There are probably some that may consider that a, a racist comment, but I'm sorry, that's what they look like. And this show is constantly being narrated. The narrator is always speaking, but and Superman will often tell us what he's going to do as he does it. I mean, I understand that this is a children's show, but, you know, I remember watching cartoons in the 80s, and, you know, I watched a lot of, uh, not so much G.I. Joe and Transformers like a lot of my peers did, but I definitely watched a lot of He-Man and Thundercats, and I don't necessarily remember them narrating their actions as they uh, took them. And the dialogue is kind, of, is kind of terrible, but I guess that's par for the course. There's not too much to this episode, like I mentioned before. Just a big fight between Superman and this phantom creature. Superman flies into space after the aliens. The creature throws a red meteor at Superman, and it has no effect. Despite the simplicity of these segments, it has the feel of the comics of the day, I believe. You know, I can see this being an eight or nine page action comic story. This creature is very formidable, clearly a match for Superman, but the battle is taking its toll on the alien ship, and these two blue guys just kind of stand there and need to turn the energy creature off, but of course the head alien won't do it. He's intent on expanding the creature's mass and destroying Superman by any means necessary. Superman is uh, flying real fast, as you can tell by the uh, friction in his wake, although there is really very little friction, if any, to be had in space. And Superman uses his heat vision on the ship, and it blows up, and Superman really pays no never mind to the destroyed ship. He just turns back to Earth and back to Perry White. And Perry asks Clark if he faced any danger, and Clark says he wasn't a tight squeeze. And he gives the George Reeves wink at the camera as the episode fades out. Which is something that the animation kind of did in the Fleischers. Although it wasn't so much a George Reeves wink as it was a nod and a smile. Here they brought over the wink from the Adventures of Superman. So it's very fun to see them calling back to what came before in that fashion. Now, Superboy, the Spy from Outer Space, Part 1. An alien from another galaxy appears on Earth causing volcanoes, fierce lightning storms, and hurricanes. When Superboy and Crypto stop him, the mysterious creature tells of a coming invasion and vanishes to his homeworld. Quickly following, Superboy's powers begin to ebb from his body, and Crypto can only look on as his master is captured and held prisoner within a clear dome. Alright, so this starts with kind of Crypto walking around looking for Superboy when an alien kind of shows up and creates a volcanic eruption and disappears. Nice guy. And then we get an image of Smallville High School. Clark is wearing a red sweater and a white shirt with some blue pants that are probably supposed to be jeans or something. 
Kind of what Clark Kent wore in the Superboy comics of the time. I hate to say that we got a better shirt rip in the Superboy animated segment than we do the Superman segment, but we do. We actually see the shirt opening to reveal the S other than the remains of the shirt kind of just sitting on Superman's shoulder like we see in the Superman segments. Superboy's off to see what kind of trouble Crypto is getting into. And it is a uh, fun image of seeing Superboy and Crypto fly together. Now, obviously, this show was made about 10 or so years before, well, 12 years to be exact, before Richard Donner decided to put Smallville in Kansas, which is where it's stuck since then. But they fly to a volcano, and I kind of wonder how far this volcano is from Smallville. Just a random musing. So now the alien is using a giant weapon to create a thunderstorm, and it's destroying trees and barns and basically making a big mess. And the narrator describes this as a holocaust, which... Might be overstating it. Here is Superboy trying to stop a tornado, presumably. The animation shows Crypto going around and around in the funnel while Superboy does an interesting dance and gets struck by lightning a few times. Crypto looks like he's doing all the work, uh, dissolving the tornado, while Superboy seems to have gotten sucked into Saturday Night Fever a little bit. But apparently Superboy's killer dance moves took care of the tornado. And we're going to see by watching this that Crypto can somehow understand Superboy, but Superboy cannot understand what crypto is saying to him so superboy uh, finds the alien and it disappears into a tor- into a tornado and apparently it flies by tornado power taking all kinds of uh, trees and shrubs in its wake <laughs> and as they're chasing him i kind of like watching crypto which just kind of bats away the sticks with its paws good thing he didn't go fetch you know he'd be bringing sticks all over the place so apparently this alien won't talk to superboy until he's captured and brought to police headquarters and right in front of a uh, presumably chief parker the alien disappears uh and it almost looks like a Star Trek transporter effect. Filmation might use that effect in a few years when uh, they start producing Star Trek, the animated series. So this is where we learn that an alien invasion is coming. And just like typical Silver Age comics, Superboy and Crypto will fly to another solar system as though they're taking a stroll to the corner store. And this show does make me miss the Fleischer's animation. I mean, Filmation style is much more static and looks cheap compared to what we got used to with the Fleischer's. They reach this other planet, and it's got a red sun, and that takes away both Superboy and Crypto's powers. And that's the cliffhanger, with Superboy captured by the aliens and tied up with a rope around his neck and, and tied to a pole. More on that in the next segment. Alright, so now, back to Superman, the Merman of Emor. Clark and Jimmy investigate the mysterious disappearance of divers off a rocky coastline, against Clark's warning. Jeepers, Mr. Kent. Do you think there's a sea monster out there? I don't know. More likely, there's a dangerous undercurrent out there. Well, I think I'll go for a swim. How about you? No, I'm going for a walk. Now be careful, Jim. Stay away from that reef. Jimmy goes scuba diving on his own and is captured by a group of mermen who have been collecting humans for their Roman-like gladiatorial games. Hearing Jimmy's signal watch, Clark changes into Superman and rescues Jimmy and the other missing men and closes off the cave tunnel between the surface world and the underworld of Emor. Mr. Kent, do you think I've got a chance to win the Pulitzer Prize for this story? Don't count on it, Jimmy. They don't give prizes for fish stories. Oh, come on! This one starts with Jimmy Olsen and Clark Kent driving through some lush palm trees. Like I mentioned in the opening, this is the first animated appearance of Jimmy, who is wearing his trademark bow tie, and uh, Clark seems to have a scarf tucked into his shirt here. I guess these are the latest fashion trends for journalists in the 1960s. You know, Jimmy acts and talks a lot like uh, Jack Larson's Jimmy. You know, lots of jeepers and golly and all that. I'm assuming, I haven't read very many Jimmy Olsen comics yet, but I'm assuming a lot of that kind of 
found its way from the adventures of Superman and into the comic books of the 1960s and beyond. And I like Jimmy taking on the initiative. He has uh, no qualms about putting on a scuba suit and uh, diving into the water and going into a cave, even though he's told not to. And uh, this is where he's captured by green sea creatures with pitchforks. And I wonder if these are supposed to be tridents, but it doesn't matter. Jimmy's captured. And in addition to the first on-screen appearance of Jimmy Olsen, this is also the first on-screen appearance of Jimmy's signal watch as he tries to use it on the water, but apparently the uh, sea creatures turn it off. It does, however, get to Clark, who is drinking some coffee. You know, I really like these comic elements coming into the cartoons. I mean, you can say what you want about the quality of Filmation's animations, but with animation, even cheap animation, you can do whatever you want. Could you imagine someone trying to do this story in live action? It just wouldn't work. There would be no way to create the underwater environment. So Superman flies down into the ocean, deep into a tunnel, flying downward, and apparently there's this big hole at the end of Emor, which is home to the mermen. Apparently the mermen are barbaric, and here is Jimmy in a, looks like a big ice cube with uh, other swimmers. This is where we get the necessary exposition that Emor was an ancient Roman seaport, which was dropped into the sea by an earthquake. I guess the writers didn't want to go with Atlantis, which was part of Aquaman lore, and even Submariner lore over at Marvel Comics. Now, apparently, a bunch of mean-looking fish are uh, sicked on the humans who get kind of knocked around in their cube a bit. And this villainous king just kind of sits there and monologues while the creatures attack. And there's some nice image- imagery of Superman, but it's very static. You know, not a lot of movement. And the dialogue in this show, especially when Superman is alone, is kind of pointless because he's narrating his actions. When he turns his X-ray vision on the captive humans, he says, Great Scott, there they are. Now, obviously, there they are. You don't need to say that because the next scene cuts to him seeing them. So, yes, we can see that there they are right there. So, Superman's punching pose is to go down on a knee and deliver his uh, punches in the air. He kind of just kind of moves as he's punching. And now Superman is going to fight a whale. He flies into its mouth, uh, delivers a one-liner, and uh, spins it around and throws it away. Now, Superman does nothing to fight the villains in this uh, particular sequence. He just grabs the cube and flies away. And I do like the fact that while he is carrying this cube out of Emor, he is he grabs a stalactite on his way and closes off the mermen. And uh, this is where Jimmy uh, learns his lesson. Uh, always heed the warnings. I'm sure he's not going to take that advice in the future, but we'll see. Then we get a little ending coda with Jimmy asking if the fish story will net him a Pulitzer. With a wink, give, Clark gives a groaning comment about how they don't give prizes to fish stories. And I kind of groaned at hearing that. So that's pretty much the first segment. Like I said, not much to these stories, but they're inter- they're entertaining. They don't now say they're welcome, right. and that's that. So I'm going to take another break. I'm going to play another promo, and then I'm going to come back with the next uh, three segments. The Superman segment, Prehistoric Pterodactyls, part two of the Superboy segment, the Spy from Outer Space, and the, the final Superman segment for this episode, Merlin's Magic Marbles. Hang around, folks. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. I kick ass for the Lord. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. 
This is an occasional cast to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm going to start this segment with the prehistoric pterodactyls. An earthquake in the, in the Arctic sets free two prehistoric pterodactyls. An American fighter pilot soon comes in contact with one, while the other menaces San Francisco. Superman saves the pilot and uses some Navy cable to lasso the first of the flying creatures, and drags it along beside him as he, as he sets off for San Francisco. After a short tussle, he uses a large net to restrain the second pterodactyl, and flies the two of them to a distant planet to live out the rest of their days. Hi, Lois. Where in heaven's name have you been, Clark? Off in another world? Well, you, uh, you might say that, Lois. Alright, so this episode will start with two, with an earthquake and a few pterodactyls escaping. And Lois and Clark are traveling over the Golden Gate Bridge because they happen to be in San Francisco right now. And uh, they hear of a bunch of flying monsters on the radio, so they're on to the story. Clark makes up a story about needing gas and uh, off he goes. It's nice to see the uh, excuses that Clark makes is, uh, are being used in the show. And this is, I believe, the first appearance of Lois Lane in the series. Like I mentioned before, Joan Alexander is reprising her role from the Fleischer cartoons, and she's doing a good job here. Nothing spectacular, but it's a solid performance. The pilot in this plane is doing a pretty good job of acting frantic as he tries to shoot the pterodactyl with his missiles, which are having absolutely no effect. The dinosaur did try to take a bite out of, uh, of this plane, but it apparently didn't like the way it tasted and spit it out. And meanwhile, this aircraft carrier seems to have declared war, and, you know, just it's amusing watching these missiles have absolutely no effect. Now, Superman is on the case, and I'm getting to the point already. Two plus segments in, and this is a troubling sign, is that I'm kind of done with Superman's dialogue at this point, you know. He doesn't shut up. You know, I complained that the Fleischer Superman really never talked. This one doesn't shut up. So, Superman lassoed the dinosaur, basically muzzling it, and he's going to haul it back to San Francisco, because... Whatever. I guess whatever works. He's going to maybe use it to get the other one. So now here's Lois. Uh, he gets on the local cable car and travels to the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, when in San Fran, you ride the cable car. Everyone else calls it a flying monster, but I like how Lois is smart enough to realize it's a pterodactyl, yet she doesn't seem very surprised that there is a Jurassic or Cretaceous creature flying around 1960s San Francisco. But there it is. The Coast Guard is continuing to be ineffective against the creature, so it truly is a job for Superman. And then it lands on top of the trolley car, somehow, without collapsing it in any way. And then Superman notices, you know, it's very nice of Superman to remind us that Lois is in the cable car. You know, just in case the kids forgot what they watched less than a minute ago. And then, apparently, Superman has named this dinosaur. It's Terry. Or Terry Baby, as he's calling him. Fish. Bud Collier's performance is good, but this show is so poorly written. And unlike the first one that Superman managed to lasso with uh, really uh, no trouble, <clears throat> this particular dinosaur is not coming nearly as easily, and uh, at least until Superman kind of grabs it by the tail and flings it somewhere. Superman borrows a large net, and I wonder if he's going to give it back. And uh, congratulations for Superman, he muscled two dinosaurs now. 
And with that, he tows them to another planet where they somehow don't suffocate in space. You know, science has never been uh, DC Comics' strong suit. And it continues to not be a very strong suit here, but here he goes. This is the Silver Age. So, he deposits the dinosaurs on another planet, and that's pretty much the end of this episode. Now on to Superboy, the Spy from Outer Space, Part 2. At his master's suggestion... As the spaceships roar across the red sun, Superboy feels a sudden surge of returning strength. But when they have passed... He grows suddenly weak again. That red sun, that's what's sapping my strength. Crypto, you've got to find some way to blot out the sunlight. You understand, old buddy? Find something, anything. Cover the dome. Crypto spills a paint-like substance over the clear dome, shading Superboy from the planet's red sun, which has drained his powers. He quickly overpowers his captors and, together with Crypto, heads back to Earth to defeat the invading army. With a blast of his super breath. Superboy swiftly quells the blaze. But then comes another order from the flagship. And another craft leaves the formation. Excellent. Unless Earth surrenders to us now, we shall evaporate all her waters. Smallville, Superboy watches the last of the invader fleet vanish into space. Oh, you sure taught them a good lesson, Superboy. They'll never be back to trouble this world again. I sure hope so, Chief. But I wonder, can we really ever be sure? Alright, that synopsis was pretty much short and sweet, and we picked this one up with Superboy trapped on that other world that he followed the alien to, and with Superboy trapped, the spaceships are flying away. Superboy got a brief surge of strength when the ship flew by the sun, and that gave him an idea. I'm not sure if this is how it would actually work, but this is how it's going to work in this case. Apparently, when the red sun is blocked, Superboy has powers. There is no way of blocking 
red sunlight will let yellow sunlight in, but apparently just not seeing the red sun for a minute is enough to uh, negate its effects. Alright, let's let's roll with that. But it definitely is very nice that Crypto understands what is being told to him. And uh, fortunately, there happens to be something a bucket of something yellow laying around. And uh, Crypto spills it on top of the dome and Superboy gets free because his strength is back. And in some very static looking fighting, Superboy delivers a few punches to knock out these green aliens. And now this is amusing as Superboy lifts the yellow dome from inside and it is seemingly... Flying under its own power, although we know that it's Superboy under it pushing the thing from within to block the yellow sunlight. It is a good thing that this is not lead-based paint. Or maybe it is. Who knows? Lead-based paint was still being used back then. Otherwise, Superboy would not be able to see where he was going. So Now the invasion fleet is at Earth and the narration tells us what's going on. The ships were just kind of hovering and apparently we get a shot of one ship setting a bunch of trees on fire with a big magnifying glass. You know? Kind of like roasting ants. Here comes Superboy and Crypto. They put out the fire that another ship is coming down, creating a water twister, and they're using that to evaporate the oceans. Superboy flies on the water. A big rock takes care of that. So as you can see, we're all about the simple solutions here. Break the magnifying glass, cover the, t- the twister with a big rock. So next, they're going to send a very bunch of objects uh, and people going up and up and up with an anti-gravity ray. It's so nice that all these ships come with a different weapon. And it's really nice of the aliens to only deploy one ship at a time, giving Superboy to not be overwhelmed by the uh, numerous crises that he should be facing. And as these people are rising, none of them are actually moving. They're just very still, as if they were filmation drawings. What a coincidence. Now Superboy has an idea of taking out the ships, and apparently one punch is all that is required. I mean, what space battle would be complete without Superboy spinning around and throwing stuff around? You know, that's the order of the day around here. These parts just spin around and throw. Superboy is clearly very good at the hammer throw. And it's uh, nice that Chief Parker was congratulating Superboy on saving the world from an alien invasion. You would think that's a little bit above his pay grade, but I guess he's there. Overall, not bad. You know, it's Superboy versus aliens. I mean, what's wrong with that? Personally, I'd rather see Superboy stories that can only be Superboy stories. I mean, you could have easily just kind of swapped Superman in and this Superman story, so it's not very unique. This didn't need to be a Superboy story. Hopefully going forward, we'll see more stories that... You can only do with Superboy. If it's a Superboy story and it's something that can easily be done as a Superman story, why bother making it a Superboy story? That's it. Really all I got on that. So let's go back to uh, to Superman with Merlin's Magic Marbles. Lex Luthor uses a time travel viewer to fool Merlin into supplying magic marbles that will help him with crimes. Great Lucifer! Wizard of King Arthur's court. For what purpose do you conjure up Merlin the Great? I need your help, mighty wizard. I seek a magic formula to use in committing cry uh, deeds without being detected. It is simple to baffle your pursuers and drive them wild. Turn thyself into an eight-year-old child. How can I do that? I will give thee a formula for a magic marble. A magic marble? But be forewarned, for its effect lasts but half an hour. That's time enough. Nobody would suspect an eight-year-old child. Not even my nemesis, Superman. One set will temporarily make him look like an eight-year-old, and another makes him a shadow. And I will say, going into this, that it is very nice to see Lex Luthor. This is his first appearance on television, if you can believe that. 
I really feel as though the Adventures of Superman missed out on, on an opportunity by not using Lex Luthor. I mean, it would have been nice for Lex to kind of hassle the Man of Steel maybe 25% of the time. It would have had to have been all the time, but Luthor, even then, was such a big part of the Superman mythos. It's strange that that's the only incarnation, and one that's well-loved. A lot of people love the Adventures of Superman with George Reeves, but it's strange that that's the only incarnation of the Man of Steel where Lex Luthor is absent. A missed opportunity. And another thing that's weird watching this when you know modern Lex Luthor is that modern Luthor basically dismisses magic at every opportunity. Here, he's contacting Merlin because he needs a magical solution to get rid of his nemesis, Superman. Luthor kind of looks and sounds like Telly Savalas. Although I do find that there's something off about Luthor's performance. I mean, voiced by Jackson Beck, it almost sounds stilted. And he's speaking very slow and robotically. Beck also voices Perry White, so maybe he seems as though he's trying a little bit too hard to disguise his voice. Maybe it'll just take him a little while to find his Lex Luthor voice. So here's Clark at the police station when a bank alarm goes off. So he changes to Superman and Luthor and his man are robbing a bank. And then with a poof of smoke, Luthor and... I'm not sure if he's Blinky or Beanie, become eight-year-olds. A uh, poof of smoke is a movie trick to uh, disguise, to make something disappear or to replace something without the camera picking it up. The uh, Wizard of Oz used it quite a bit for the Wicked Witch. Although if you watch it in high enough definition, you can see... Her leave the scene through through the smoke, either by trapdoor or by walking out of the frame. Anyway, Luthor is a black-haired child and his sidekick. They run away. Then Luthor asks for Superman's autograph, uh, the kid Luthor, not the adult Luthor. And not knowing who it is, he says no and flies off. He's too busy. And uh, too bad he didn't x-ray the burlap sacks they were holding. He would have seen the money that he's looking for right then and there. Alright, so as this segment goes on, there are more robberies, and Superman is still frustrated. They'll never suspect us, Blinky. Never. They're gone, Superman! A big, bald-headed man and a mousy little guy! How could they have got away so fast? Hey, Superman! Can we have your autograph? Not right now, boys. Up! Up and away! <laughs> and uh, kind of a funny image of Luthor and Beanie or Blinky, whatever the hell his name is, riding their bikes behind Superman. But apparently the uh, child Marvel wears off and Luthor has Merlin for something else. And now he's going to be a shadow. So Clark is reporting in to Perry and he's saying Superman doesn't know what to do when... Lights go out. And now, Superman doesn't know what to do, Perry. Wait, Caesar's ghost, what's this? Well, the whole city's blacked out. Wait here, I'll get a flashlight. Power lines must be down. A perfect setting for crime. And a job for Superman. Clark will change it to Superman, and this sequence is a little different, this change. You don't see the uh, white shirt hanging over his shoulder this time. You got his... Superman's back to the camera, and you see the costume kind of just revealed the back from the back as the suit kind of just falls off and he flies away. Apparently, being shadows makes Luthor and Beanie invisible, and uh, they're going to back themselves right up to the U.S. Mint. And uh, here's a nice shot of Superman grabbing a live power line, and we get some red flickering and some additional lightning around Superman. He kind of looks like the same effect as we saw in the Phantom Creature episode, and uh, Superman is on his way. And you know what, though? If you hold up the... Images of Superman conducting electricity in the Fleischer cartoons against this one. You'll see that while the Fleischer one holds up, this one does not. Like I said, cheap animation. The, uh, the filmation trademark. So meanwhile, uh, the, our shadow friends are backing right up to the U.S. Mint. 
because they're invisible. And apparently Luthor and Beanie are only shadows in, in the nighttime. This might be a little bit of overkill, but Luthor tries to take out two cops with a cannon, but Superman stops him. Now, taken out of context, this shot of Superman threatening kid Luthor, who tried to escape with the first marble, could seem like he's threatening the kid, but we know the truth. And then, you know, Perry asks Clark at the end if they believe Luthor's story about getting help from Merlin. Clark, do you believe Luthor's story about Merlin? Well, why not, Perry? I believe in Superman. Don't you? I'm not sure why Luthor would give up that information. It sounds completely out there, but I'm willing to roll with it. And that's when uh, Clark counters that with, well, you believe in Superman, don't you? Well, sure, but I'm guessing uh, Perry has met Superman once or twice, or at least seen a photograph. But, you know, it ends with a wink. Solid segment. It's good to see Luthor again, and we're going to see more of him, which is nice. And I look forward to seeing uh, a little more villainy out of uh, Luthor and not just uh, doing strange stuff to rob banks. Lex Luthor is not your average bank robber. He is a lot more than that. So next time, uh, we'll go with the next four New Adventures of Superman segments. The Threat of the Thrutans, the Wicked Warlock, the Chimp Who Made It Big, and the Deadly Icebergs. And plus, the next two Superboy segments, Crypto's Calamitous Capers and The Man Who Knew Superboy's Secret. And as you heard me introduce uh, the Filmation series in the opening, uh, obviously there wasn't time for feedback in this episode. I will get back to feedback with next week's episode. Until then, you can uh, email me at manascreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over at the Facebook group. Just type the Man of Screen podcast into your Facebook search feed and the group should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And as always, you can find the show at www.twotruefreaks.com. Until next time, folks, have a good one. Bye. <laughs>